I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I've breathed the mountain air, man. This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shay. G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled. It's Nikki Shea back in the seat with you this week on another exciting adventure that we've been up to on The Road Less Travelled podcast. As always, you can interact with us by dropping us an email, which is fatcat at iinet.net.au. You can send me an SMS or give me a phone call on 042-752-8467. Following us on social media, you can do that via Instagram and also Facebook and our website through fatcatmedia.com.au that has plenty of information of what we've been up to as well as previous episodes of the Road Less Travelled podcast where you can download those and listen to them and as I said keep up to date with what we've been up to. This week I thought we'd take you to the capital of New South Wales in Sydney and for a while it was a tussle between Melbourne and Sydney as to the town that would become the capital of Australia. They compromised and it ended up going halfway between both to Canberra but this week I thought we'd focus on Sydney in New South Wales. Welcome to the Road Less Travelled podcast with me Nikki Shea. All right, so let's get into this week's episode of the Road Less Travelled podcast. So Sydney, as I said, the capital city of the state of New South Wales and the most populous city in Australia and Oceania for that reason. Located on Australia's east coast, the metropolis surrounds Port Jackson and extends about 70 kilometres towards the Blue Mountains to the west, Hawkesbury to the north, the Royal National Park to the south and MacArthur to the southwest. Sydney is made up of 658 suburbs spread across its 33 local government areas. Residents of the city known as Sydney Siders and the approximate population is around about 5.5 million. The city is home to approximately 66% of the state's population. Indigenous Australians have inhabited the Sydney area for at least 30,000 years and thousands of Aboriginal engravings remain throughout the region. During his first Pacific voyage in 1770, Lieutenant James Cook and his crew became the very first Europeans to chart the eastern coast of Australia, making landfall at Botany Bay. In 1788, the first fleet of convicts, led by Arthur Phillip, founded Sydney as a British penal colony, the first European settlement in Australia. After World War II, it experienced mass migration and became one of the most multicultural cities in the world. Furthermore, around about 45.4% of the population reported as having been born overseas. And the city of Sydney has the third largest foreign-born population of any city in the world after London and New York City. Now, despite being one of the most expensive cities financially in the world to live in, Sydney frequently ranks in the top 10 most livable cities in the world. It's classified as an alpha global city by the Globalisation and World Cities Research Network, indicating its influence in the region and throughout the world. It's ranked 11th in the world for economic opportunity and has advanced market economy with strengths in finance, manufacturing and tourism. And established in 1850, the University of Sydney was Australia's very first university and is regarded as one of the world's most leading universities. Sydney too has hosted major international sporting events and who can forget the 2000 Summer Olympics. The city is amongst the top 15 most visited cities in the world with millions of tourists coming each year to see the the city's Sydney landmarks. 
boasting over 1 million hectares of natural reserves and parks. Its notable natural features include, of course, Sydney Harbour and Royal National Park. Build attractions such as the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the World Heritage-listed Sydney Opera House are most also well-known to the international visitors. And the main passenger airport serving uh, the metropolitan area is Kingsford Smith Airport, one of the world's oldest continually operating airports. And this week in the news, of course, the iconic Sydney Harbour Bridge celebrated its 90th birthday. So I thought that we have a bit of a look at the bridge uh, to an empire, really, and beyond. And it was the big coat hanger, the nickname of the Harbour Bridge that turned 90. And the building of the Sydney Harbour Bridge was really a powerful symbol of where Australia thought it was going and who it was actually leaving behind. In early 1924, when work began on arguably this country's most defining built structure, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Australia was torn between self-identified as a loyal outpost of empire and one of the globe's most innovative new democracies. The bridge, for all its ambition, was always going to signify in the political, cultural and Australian social sensibility of the day more than just merely a proud arch linking the close but practically remote north shores of Milsons Point to Dawes Point in the south of Sydney. In just 23 years of federation, Australia had become a template for global social progress with women's suffrage, workers' protection, social security and high living standards, albeit at the expense of the dispossessed, nearly eradicating First Nations people. When it opened nine decades ago on Saturday, the bridge with its distinctive bow constructed of 40,000 tonnes of steel and over 6 million rivets stood as a breathtaking sculptural testimony to Australia and Harbour City's exceptionalism. The bridge was an early and very powerful symbol of the modern Australian project and it ties in with the idea of Australia Unlimited where there was no limits to what a young nation could do and could aim to do if its natural and human resources were harnessed to the full capacity using the latest engineering technology of the day. Great Britain, though, apparently viewed it differently. The coat hanger was built under the direction of the visionary Australian public works engineer John Branfield, who was responsible for much of Sydney's urban transport infrastructure. But it was designed by the British firm Dorman Lowe of Middlesbrough and based on that company's own Tyne Bridge in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Most of the steel of the bridge was smelted in England and then shipped in preformed sections to Australia, though some of the steel was sourced from Newcastle. When somewhere between 30,000 and a million people turned out for the opening, they did so under two giant flags, the Union Track and the Australian flag, snapping symbolically atop a construction crane. The nation was finding its stride all right, but for Great Britain, the bridge signified that it was all still very much part of the colonial project. The Sydney Harbour Ridge is the eighth longest spanning arch bridge in the world and the tallest steel arch bridge measuring 134 metres from top to water level. It was also the world's widest long span bridge at 48.8 metres wide until construction of the Port Man Bridge in Vancouver that was completed in 2012. The Sydney Harbour Bridge went on to be added to the Australian National Heritage List in 2007 and to the New South Wales State Heritage Register in 1999. Yeah, you can get across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, do Nikki. You can drive across. I think it's got an eight-lane um, highway across it now. Um, with actually integrates part of a bus lane. Um, you can also walk across it. You can 
ride your push bike across it or you can catch the train across it. And the Sydney Harbour Bridge requires constant inspections and other maintenance work to keep it safe for the public and also to protect it from corrosion. Among the trades employed on the bridge are painters, ironworkers, boilermakers, fitters, electricians, plasterers, carpenters, pluggers and plumbers rather and riggers the most noticeable um, maintenance work on the bridge involves painting the steel work of the bridge that needs to be painted is a combined 485,000 meters squared or 120 acres the equivalent of 60 football ovals each coat on the bridge requires some 30,000 liters of paint a special fast drying paint is used so that any paint drops have dried before reaching the vehicles or the bridge surface one notable identity of course from previous bridge painting crews is Australian comedian and actor Paul Hogan who worked as a bridge rigger before rising to fame in the 1970s. In 2003 the Roads and Traffic Authority began completely repainting the southern approach spans of the bridge. This involved removing the old lead base paint and repainting the 90,000 metres squared or 22 acres of steel below the deck. Workers operated from self-contained platforms below the deck, with each platform having an air extraction system to filter the airborne particles. An abrasive blasting was used with the lead waste collected and safely removed from the site for disposal. Before, rather, Between December 06 and March 2010, the bridge was subject to works designed to ensure its longevity, and the works included some strengthening too. Since 2013, two grit plasting robots specially developed with the University of Technology in Sydney, they've been employed to help with the painting stripping operation on the bridge. The robots are nicknamed Rosie and Sandy. They're intended to reduce workers' potential exposure to the dangerous lead paint and asbestos and the blasting equipment, which is enough force to cut through clothes and skin. There's plenty of tourism at the southeast pylon even during its construction. The bridge was such a prominent feature of Sydney that it would attract local interest. One of the ongoing tourist attractions of the bridge has been the southeast pylon, which is accessed via the pedestrian walkway across the bridge and then a climb to the top of the pylon of about 200 200 odd steps. Speaking of climbs, you can do a bridge climb. Um, In December 2006, a company called Bridge Climb launched an alternative to climbing the upper arches of the bridge. The Discovery Climb allows allows climbers to ascend the lower cord of the bridge and view its internal structure from the apex of the lower cord climbers ascend the staircase to a platform at the summit you can see people doing all these bridge climbs throughout the day and you can also go underneath the bridge by jumping one of the ferries and go under the bridge and it's absolutely fantastic Um, just a great experience it's such an iconic um, site of Sydney it's the Sydney Harbour Ridge and of course the Sydney Opera House and of course who can forget Sydney's famous New Year's Eve celebrations where the Harbour Bridge has always been now an integral part of the Sydney New Year's Eve celebration generally being used in such a spectacular way during the fireworks display at about 9pm and midnight and in recent times the bridge has included a rope light display on a framework in the centre of the Eastern Arch which is used to complement the fireworks. The scaffolding and framework were clearly visible for some weeks before the event revealing the outline of the design and of course during the millennium celebrations in 2000 the Sydney Harbour Ridge was lit up with the word eternity as a tribute to the legacy of Arthur Stace a Sydney artist who for many years inscribed the said word on pavements in chalk in copper plate writings despite the fact that he was illiterate. Um, The Sydney Harbour Bridge has been closed for only four occasions 
and in particular the walk for reconciliation in 2000 that was closed to vehicle access for a day to allow a special reconciliation march to take place. This was part of a response to an Aboriginal stolen generation inquiry which found widespread suffering had taken place amongst Australian Aboriginal children forcibly placed into the care of white parents in a little publicised state government scheme. Between 200,000 and 300,000 people were estimated to walk the bridge in a symbolic gesture of a crossing of a divide. During the Sydney 2000 Olympics in September and October of that year, the bridge was adorned with the Olympic rings. It included the Olympic torches route to the Olympic Stadium. The men's and women's Olympic marathon events likewise included the bridge as part of their route to the Olympic Stadium. A fireworks display at the end of the closing ceremony ended at the bridge and the east-facing side of the bridge has been used several times since as a framework from which hang the static fireworks, especially during, of course, as I mentioned, the New Year's Eve uh, displays. In the Formula One aspect, 2005 Australian driver Mark Webber, he drove a Williams BMW Formula One car across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So just some, and you'll see it in heaps and heaps of movies. And of course the um, 2012 was the 80th anniversary. And of course last Saturday was the 90th anniversary of the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge Heritage Listed. Um, and just a, a fantastic illustration of what it's like to be an Australian, I guess, when you see the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, it's an iconic um, thing that you just don't forget. We'll take a quick break here on the Road Less Travelled podcast. Thanks for your company. When we come back, we'll talk more about things to do and places to see in Sydney. Back with more in just a moment. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast with Nikki Shea. This week from Sydney in New South Wales. And if you want uh, to plan an adventure, you want some destinations, things to do, some New South Wales road trips, the events, some deals as well, and accommodation. There is so much different accommodation from, as you know, B&Bs, motels, hotels, Airbnbs, caravan parks, tourist parks, all kinds of places. I'm not even going to recommend any. Jump onto the website www dot sydney dot com um, it's part of the new south wales destination new south wales um, and as i said wondering where to stay you can explore the accommodation options on their website you can make reservations there as well uh, getting around sydney too is pretty easy on public transport there's ferries and harbour cruises which are a really a memorable way to to experience the, the beauty of one of the world's great natural harbours. You can hop on a ferry at Circular Quay for Taronga Zoo, Manly or Watson's Bay. You can also take a ferry to intriguing Sydney Harbour Islands and Parramatta for delicious food and colonial heritage. You can also jump aboard a tribal warrior cruise and explore Aboriginal culture and, of course, the world's oldest living culture. Uh, Aboriginal people have a long connection with Sydney dating back at least 50,000 years before the first fleet arrived in 1788. There are fun and informative Aboriginal guided tours including uh, the National Parks where you can see ancient Indigenous ochre hand paintings and rock engravings and uh, this as I said places to stay, to, to stay things to do to visit events uh, deals and packages tours in Sydney you can hire cars kayaks and other things um, just jump onto their website as I mentioned sydney.com and there's 
plenty of information there. Um, and as I said, part of the destinations New South Wales um, tourism site. So plenty to see and do. Jump on their website and uh, plan your next adventure. And speaking of adventures, one that I wanted to do for a long time was the Q Station, which is the historic quarantine station, um, which is sprawled across the hillside on the very edge of Sydney Harbour. The historic quarantine station has not only an impressive Sydney Harbour National Park location, but also a really incredible history behind its more recent transformation into what they now call as the Q Station. This transformation from the often harsh reality of a quarantine station to today's peaceful accommodation and conference centre is a compelling tale of survival, adaptation and sustainability. Today their site is listed on both State and Commonwealth Heritage Registrars as an integral element of North Head and its Aboriginal natural and cultural significance. It's a place of supreme natural beauty. North Head is home to varied flora and fauna, endangered populations of eastern long-nosed bandicoots, the little penguins, sunshine wattle and eastern suburbs Banksia scrub all make their home amidst the beautiful environment of the quarantine station. Now, North Head is also part of the richer history of Aboriginal occupancy of Sydney Harbour. Whilst there is little detail in recorded knowledge of the Aboriginal presence on the Manly Peninsula, one of the local clans associated with North Head, which is a, a tidal island called Karangjal, were the Garamai. Now, Karangjal was an important ceremonial site used by the Korajim, which is known as the Wise Ones, of the associated clans of the Northern Beaches. It was a place of significant teaching and ceremonial practice. Some of the earliest contact and formative interaction between the Aboriginal clans and the British colonisation occurred at this site. On the 29th of January 1788, Captain Hunter and Lieutenant Bradley landed on Quarantine Beach during what was an initial survey of Sydney Harbour just three days after the first fleet arrived in Port Jackson. The practice of quarantine began during the 14th century in an effort to protect coastal cities from plague epidemics. Ships arriving in Venice from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days before offloading on shore. This practice called quarantine was derived from the Italian words meaning quaragione, which means 40 days. From the 1830s until 1984, migrant ships arriving in Australia, or rather arriving in Sydney, were suspected with suspected contagious diseases stopped inside North Head and offloaded passengers and crew into quarantine to protect local residents. As Australia's longest continuously operating quarantine station, the site has undergone significant change over time. The quarantine station's heritage buildings reflect a rich history, highlighting historical themes of gender, race and class. Thousands of carved sandstone engravings record the real diverse cultural and social backgrounds as well as varying experiences of the quarantine passengers. Regardless of the type of experience they had, the spirit forged by the people of the former quarantine station really helped shape our nation from that word. However, the quarantine station was not built to last forever. Because this site is really rugged, the building's lightweight and the landscape's continually changing, maintaining the quarantine station is a constant and very expensive exercise. After its closure as an, as an operational maritime quarantine facility in 1984, ownership of the quarantine station was transferred from the Commonwealth to the state government and it was reserved as part of Sydney Harbour National Park. The National Parks and Wildlife Service established guided tours and a conference and function centre. Despite considerable works by the National Parks over the first 10 years of its management as a national park, many of the buildings and some of the cultural landscapes surrounding them fell into disrepair. 
During the 1990s, the national parks realised that they could not raise enough funds to stop the decline and that the private sector funding through more creative and direct use of the site was essential to ensure long-term conservation. In 2006, the Morgan Group signed a lease with national parks. Consistent with their practice of readaptation and reuse, the original buildings now house a range of four-and-a-half-star accommodation, function spaces that cater from five to 180 people, fine dining at the Boiler House restaurant and bar, and an interpretive exhibition in the visitor centre. I guess we need to say thanks to the Moreland Group's intervention because otherwise this fragile site wouldn't have been given the respectful conversation conservation that it deserves now q station is working to redefine the full story of the quarantine station which was never thoroughly recorded the real record of history is found in the lives of the ordinary people who lived it so collecting preserving and sharing the oral histories that not only transmit knowledge from one generation to the next but allows us as people a sense of catching and holding something valuable from the receding tide of the quarantine station's past now, if you'd like more information on Q Station, jump onto their website, which is Q Station, with just the letter Q, uh, qstation.com.au. You can do history tours there as well. So if you just want to do guided tours, you can also do um, discover your own particular tour you want to do. Because for over 150 years, the quarantine station was for many the beginning of a new life in Australia after making what would have been the arduous and lengthy journey from their homelands. Those ships suspected of harbouring people infected with contagious diseases such as Spanish influenza, smallpox or bubonic plague. They were quarantined here so that the deadly diseases wouldn't reach the general public in Sydney. Ultimately a success story for the growing Sydney population. It did, however, leave an indelible mark on those who were quarantined with tales of love and loss played out alongside themes of cultural and social change, medical history and progress. I guess, too, it's fitting, too, given the circumstances with our own pandemic going on when we sit here, the word quarantine. And you can do a quarantine wander. There's group history tours as well. And one tour that I was particularly wanting to do was one of the haunted tours. So my question was, is the Q station really haunted? Well, it has a long, it's long been associated with hauntings, and indeed their ghost tours are infamous for weird and wacky experiences. And I don't know, do you, if you're a believer or if you're a non believer, um, I have to say there's plenty of several weird encounters, and you're always clean to uncover the truth. And you want to know, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not these scary stories actually hold some weight. So let's talk a little bit. Um, it housed the sick and their families for over 156 years, where about 581 people died. The first quarantine was in 1828 and started out as humble tents on the shore until 1837 when 444 came in with 56 dead people and 17 later died in quarantine. They realised there was a greater need for housed accommodation. Since then, thousands of stories of hauntings have been reported over the centuries, with some believing that ghosts are stuck in some sort of time warp of being alive and dead and have been unable to move on. Someone, uh, one, um, There's a particular uh, Facebook site you can jump onto where someone says, I was touched on the back of my leg in the morgue. Sounds innocent enough, but there was no one standing close to me and I was standing with my back to the far corner of the room. So our night started with some weird encounters indeed. The guide started the tour professing to the fact that he had never been so shocked with the things that he had seen and witnessed during his tenure at the station. So they hand you out these K2, K2 metres to measure ghostly energy at the site. 
So if you see the lights going from green to red and then that, that means that there's a poltergeist uh, energy in the air, they say. So the first site we went to was um, the little K2 meter went off very quickly. Um, the tour guide watched eagerly and asked the room if there was any spirits that wanted to connect with us. The light flashed red and the room looked a little sort of perturbed. And strangely enough, I personally didn't feel too creeped out. Heart was racing a bit though. Usually a presence of a cold chill, um, or but I didn't really I felt really skeptic about the encounter that was until we headed to the former hospital where the ghost of the matron was said to frequently haunt the property and even made some visitors vomit from fear of her presence nice inside it was dark dank and suitably creepy one of the tables appeared to be covered in deep scratches and so someone asked why that was the case and he said um this is the tour guide many of the patients were held uh, down on the table when receiving painful treatment so they could be from that suddenly the little k2 meter went off and um the tour guide ross went into questioning mode again he said hello were one of you one of those patients is that's what's happened to you he said and the K2 lights flashed again. They appeared to be keen to con- connect with him in particular. And uh, suddenly I had visions of the sixth sense with that creepy little boy who said, I see dead people. Anyway, everyone was feeling suitably uneasy and they wanted to leave the premises shortly uh, thereafterwards. And the guy took us out into what is considered one of the most haunted of places, the grave diggers' cottages, where apparently two evil doctors tortured some of the residents. I don't know how they know about these stories, but whatever makes for a good little ghost tour inside the place has a weird muggy energy it was very hot and i actually started to feel a little bit sick and dizzy the k2 meter started going off again and the tour guide got into questioning mode he said is that you sam do you want us to leave and apparently sam was one of the doctors and like the matron likes to shoo out unwanted visitors strangely enough the meter stayed put uh suggesting that sam wanted us to stay or that wasn't another spirit but whatever the case um we got out of there pretty quickly, we left the premises with the hairs sticking up on the back of the neck. Next up were the showers, and again one of the un- one of the most haunted spots where people have heard voices and have even felt a cold breath on the back of their necks. Also dark, dank, and undecidedly super creepy. This is where I felt the cold, shivery energy that I usually experience when I feel that there's a presence. I wasn't sure if that was because the guide had suitably scared the, you know, what out of me with his tale of ghostly encounters, and I was now believing all the hype, whether it was a really a haunted site or not. Whatever the case, um, I was starting to shit my pants. The more sceptical um, people weren't so sure, but as we meandered back to our little cottage, um, I saw people, look, their eyes were darting across. Everyone was like super jumpy, um, but s- thankfully we stayed in one of the uh, well-situated cottages. It was not haunted. Tastefully finished in sort of uh, early 20th century decor with stunning views across Middle Harbour to Balmoral Beach. It is a magical place to watch the sunset and enjoy some spirits of a different kind, preferably mixed with tonic water. You can do the ghostly getaway accommodation pack when we did it was $299 per couple it includes one night accommodation um, ghostly encounters tour a complimentary bottle of wine breakfast for two people wi-fi and the late checkout of 12 12 p.m um, the ghostly getaway um, accommodation package if you jump onto qstation.com.au and just click on the ghostly getaway all the details are up there um, and as i said um I think I said 229. You can do it. I think it's 339, and the Harbour View Room is about 369. Jump onto their website and have a look. If you want to be scared, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it really gets the adrenaline going. It's a, a, a historical overnight stay, and uh, those thrilling ghostly adventure tours, you'll um, 
I don't know if you'll be able to sleep in after that late night, but uh, it certainly was a lot of fun for us. And uh, you do you leave with that big question mark? Um, is there something? Yeah, who knows? But uh, it was enough to give me the little creepies, and um, yeah, you wanted to get out of some of those rooms, and others you wanted to stay. But um, do it and uh, see for yourself. Um, was one of the one of the best things that I've uh, have done. So Q Station, how do you get there? It's uh, located on Sydney's northern beaches. It's just a five-minute drive from Manly and about 30 minutes drive, I don't know, about 30 or 40 minutes drive from the CBD. Free parking is available uh, on their site. By car, you arrive in Manly via Sydney Road. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there's plenty of parking there. Um, by bus, you can catch public transport with bus. Uh, plenty of bus information um, may change due to COVID. There's ferry transportation, water taxis as well. Tickets can be purchased from the Fast Ferry booth at Manly or at Circular Key Wharves or online. Um, My Fast Ferry is an enjoyable, relaxing way also to see Sydney Harbour and arrive at Q Station just like the past passengers would have done. So uh, as I mentioned, jump on. Uh, their address is 1 North Head Scenic Drive in Manly, New South Wales and their website is qstation.com.au. Thoroughly re- recommend it um, and it's just a great way to, to enjoy the history of Sydney um, and I hope that you've enjoyed a little bit of um, some of the things that we've spoken about uh, with the quarantine station, Q Station and also Sydney Harbour Bridge on this episode of the Road Less Travelled Podcast. We'll be back to wrap up in just a moment. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of the Road Left Less Travelled podcast from Sydney. We've only briefly touched on some of the fantastic things you can do in Sydney. The Sydney Opera House, visit Bondi Beach, as I mentioned in the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Darling Harbour, the Royal Botanic Gardens of Sydney, Taronga, uh, Taronga Zoo, there's the Art Gallery, Port Jackson Bay, the Museum of Contemporary Art, you can do a bridge climb, the Sydney Tower Eye, Luna Park in Sydney, Sea Life Sydney Aquarium, Manly Beach, the Powerhouse Museum, Cro- uh, Crocodile, Cockatoo Island, the uh, Australian National Maritime Museum, the Queen Victoria Building, um, there's a Wildlife Sydney Zoo, the Bondi to Coogee Walk, Star Event Centre, Coogee Beach. There's so many things to do. St Mary's Cathedral, Hyde Park, plus say a walk of uh, Mrs Macquarie's Chair, Shelley Beach, North Head Quarantine Station, Balmoral Beach, um, Bron- Bondi to Bronte Coastal Walk, plenty. Um, Madame Tussauds, heaps to do. Hyde Park Barracks and a walk you must put on your to-do list as a walk around the historic rocks area of Sydney. So plan a weekend or plan a week or two weeks or a month. There is plenty to see and do in Sydney. You won't be disappointed. My name is Nikki Shea. You've been listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast and I hope to catch you out there somewhere on the Road Less Travelled. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. I've been everywhere. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. Fat Cat Media.